We're on the third day of the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. In Matthew chapters 24 and 25, we will take these collectively together as they are commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It's really the Olivet Conversation because Jesus takes his disciples to the Mount of Olives and begins to talk to them about his second coming, the time when he will return to earth and set up his kingdom. If you would, just glance down to verse 3 in Matthew 24, verse 3. You see the disciples, they ask him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they asked Jesus the question, and in response, Jesus gives them the longest answer to a question found in the New Testament. And so we will entitle these next two chapters, End of the Age. And as Jesus talks about all of the things leading up to his second coming, there's a lot of speculation, you know, as to what's going to happen at the end of the age. Every time there's a global disaster, people ask, well, could the end be near? And when we have several of those events on top of one another, people start to panic and wonder, is this it? Is this the end? And of course, we have the multitude of movies and documentaries and television series and specials that address this topic. There's a whole genre now of those types of films and and TV shows. But what better source to turn to than the one who talked about it more than anyone else and the one whose return it is we're talking about. That is Jesus. Let's see what Jesus has to say about this subject. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. And this morning we're talking about, we're going to focus in on the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus talks about seven events that will take place just prior to his return, prior to his coming. And the first three verses really set the scene for what Jesus will talk about over the next two chapters. So these first three verses set the whole thing up. Now, Jesus has been teaching in the temple since chapter 21, after the the triumphal entry, when he came into Jerusalem being heralded as the Messiah. And then the next day, he went into the temple, he overturned the tables, and he drove out the money changers and the merchants who were profiting off of God's people. So he cleansed the temple, and he began teaching in the temple day after day. In fact, we know that the religious leaders came. They were listening. We saw that in chapter 23 as Jesus silenced his critics by using the word of God. But now he departs from the temple, and he goes across the way to the Mount of Olives, which isn't far away, and he's going to begin to speak of the future, the future of Jerusalem, the future of the nation, the future of the world, and his future coming. In fact, we need to see these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, they need to be seen through a Jewish lens because it's all about what's going on in Jerusalem and with the people of God, especially the people of Israel. Remember, Matthew's gospel is a Jewish gospel. Matthew's purpose in writing his gospel was to explain that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, the king they had been waiting for. And so before we move on, before we go forward, let's look back just a bit. In chapter 23, verse 37, if you would just glance back a little bit, where we left off, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. 
How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and the house of Israel. Verse 39, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word till is an important word. You shall see me no more till, till you say this. Until then, you won't see me. Now, who is you he's talking about? He's talking about Jerusalem, the people of Israel, national, ethnic Israel. In fact, in verse 37, that word gather, I want to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, that word gather is where we get the word synagogue. Synagogue is a Jewish gathering. He's saying, I want to have synagogue with you. So that's all leading up to, now we drop in, chapter 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. There were several structures on this large temple mount area, and the temple itself was just awe-inspiring. It was an engineering and architectural wonder. It was built out of white marble, and it was plated with gold. And it was said that when the sun shone on it, it just pierced everything around it, that you could hardly look at it. And it was surrounded by many porches and porticos and pillars carved out of solid marble. It was just a beautiful structure. The Babylonian Talmud stated that he that never saw the temple of Herod never saw a fine building. Now, historically, it's referred to as the temple of Herod, but it was the Jewish temple. Herod just gave it a facelift because he was seeking to placate to his Jewish constituents there. But it was a place of worship for the Jews. And over time, it was so glorious and so awesome that it became an idol to them. It became something that they worshipped. It was their, their token piece uh, that they swore by. We saw that in earlier chapters. They would swear by the various furnishings uh, in, in the temple. And so here, here are the disciples. They're in Jerusalem. And remember, they're from Galilee. At best, they traveled to Jerusalem once a year for Passover. And here they are. They're just admiring all of this as they're walking through Jerusalem. And they see the temple and Jesus spoke to uh, the re- yet Jesus spoke to the religious leaders where we, we left off. He reminded them in verse 38, "Do you see now, as you have rejected the Messiah, God has rejected you and your house." Speaking of the temple in verse 38, "Your house is left to you desolate." He says, "Your house, not my house." He's talking about your house. This whole discourse is a response to the temple. So continuing on, verse two. Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, their jaws dropped at this point. I mean, he first talked about it being left desolate, and now not even one stone will be left on top of another. 2,000 years ago, the temple was considered the evidence of God's blessing upon the Jewish people. As long as the temple stood, that was a sign to them, hey, God is on our side. He is still with us. His presence is here. And understand, it took 18,000 men over 80 years to build this temple. 
So for some people, their entire life and even their son's entire lives were spent building this temple. And now he's talking about it falling down. This is a prophecy that Jesus is giving. It was a real prophecy that was literally fulfilled. There was a real temple, and it was really destroyed. Forty years after this, Jesus said this, after he said this, there was a widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans, and though there were some early successes, Roman soldiers ultimately crushed the rebels. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was leveled, it was uh, including the temple, just as Jesus said it would happen. And the literal fulfillment of this prophecy establishes the tone of the rest of the prophecies of this chapter. you got to understand that. We should expect a literal fulfillment for these as well. So the disciples say, hey, this is so awesome. And Jesus says, yeah, it's all coming down. Verse 3. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the answer they expected was tomorrow, two days, you know, maybe by the end of the Passover at the latest. They were not thinking in terms of years and years into the future. They were thinking of something immediately, that Jesus would personally present himself as the king, as the Messiah. They thought the events that took place on Palm Sunday when Jesus rode in on the donkey and everyone was saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the king of Israel. And they thought that was the signal that something was about to happen. He's going to make his glorious appearance at any moment. You see, the disciples had an eschatology. They had a view of last day's events. That's what eschatology is. It's having a view of last day's events and how it's going to play out. The disciples had a fixed eschatology. First, there would be a time of turmoil in the Jewish nation. And they saw that that is already being fulfilled by the Roman occupation. Second, there would be a forerunner someone to herald the the Messiah, an Elijah-like forerunner who will come announcing the coming of the Messiah. So no wonder people flocked to the Jordan River to see and hear John the Baptist. Third, they expected the Messiah to appear and defeat all of their enemies. And then fourth, that the scattered Jews from around the world would return to Israel and Jerusalem would be set up, the kingdom would be brought in in this geocentrically from the city of Jerusalem and spreading out. So the disciples are thinking that they're somewhere in between number two and number three. The turmoil had happened. The forerunner had come. So now we're waiting for the Messiah to set it all up, his, his kingdom. If Christ is the king, where is the, his kingdom? Well, it's got to be any day now. So they're a bit confused. If Jesus just predicted the temple, which is at the center of everything, if it's going to be destroyed, they're going, we don't get it. How can you be our Messiah, our deliverer, if the temple is going to be destroyed? We don't get that. You take over the world. You rule and reign from Jerusalem in the temple, but you're predicting the temple is going to be destroyed? That doesn't make sense. And that's the question in their minds. Now, for us, let's 
Fast forward to our day and age as for us in the church as believers, because the problem we have is we read Matthew 24 and other eschatological books like Daniel and Revelation from our modern day vantage point, we're looking forward to two events on the horizon. Event number one, Jesus coming toward the earth for his church. And event number two, Jesus coming all the way to the earth with his church. Those are two separate events. The first is what we call the rapture of the church. The second event is called the second coming of Jesus Christ, his glorious appearing. At some point in the future, and I believe it could be at any moment, that we would be raptured or caught up. That's where we get the word rapture. It's from those two words, caught up, in the original or in the Latin is the word rapture, where we get our word rapture. We're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. But after a period of tribulation, which is largely written about here in Matthew 24, Jesus will come all the way to the earth with his church to rule and to reign. And guess what? He's going to come back where? On the Mount of Olives, where he's having this conversation. And that's why when the disciples were looking up to heaven uh, as Jesus was ascending from the Mount of Olives in Acts chapter 1, the angel appeared and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back on the Mount of Olives, and he's coming back this time with his church. That's the second coming. So the focus of Matthew 24 is not on the rapture. It's on the second coming and the events that happen for those end-time believers, those primarily Jewish believers that culminates in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 3, they essentially ask Jesus two questions. When and what? When will it happen? What will be the sign? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? It's really just two questions. Some see it as three questions. But the last two are connected grammatically since the word coming and the word end are joined by a single article and conjunction. But the first question relates to the events that I described in, that happened in 70 AD. Matthew doesn't really even answer that part of the question. Mark and Luke do. That's regarding the destruction of the temple. Now, one more thing to set all this up before we continue on. I know we haven't gotten to our outline yet, but it's important that we lay this foundation that is established here in these first three verses. But one more thing to set this up, jump down to verse 8, where Jesus says, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. The word sorrows means travail. It's the same word used to describe a woman in labor pains. All these are the beginnings of labor pains. And when does a woman experience labor pains? Is it at conception? <laughs> no. Is it in the first trimester? No. It's not until the very end, right before the baby comes out. And they intensify as the baby gets closer to being born. So Jesus says, all these things I'm going to be talking about here are going to happen just before, just right before the second coming, and they're going to increase with rapidity to a final cataclysmic end. Paul taught the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. He says that when people say peace and safety, the, uh, there will be sudden destruction as travail upon a woman with child. So keep that in mind. 
all these events that we're going to look at are just before Jesus returns. What I believe is it's termed as the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period uh, right before the second coming. That's important because the reality is these events have been taking place ever since the church has been birthed. And they're even happening now. But the events that Jesus is describing here are beyond the level of anything we have ever experienced before. So Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, and that's what spurs this whole thing on. So this series over these next two chapters, 24, 25, is called The End of the Age. And the first half of the Great Tribulation is what we see in these verses, verses 4 through 14. And these birth pains in Matthew chapter 24 parallel with the seal judgments that are found in Revelation chapter 6. They're almost in the exact same order. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth here. Keep yourself there in Matthew 24. We'll show you the verses from Revelation chapter 6 as we go through. But it's amazing to see what Jesus says that Matthew records parallels with what John saw as he was given the revelation that he wrote down in the book of Revelation. So first we see, number one, deception. We see that in verses 4 and 5, and this correlates with the first seal judgment, which is the white horse found in Revelation 6, verse 2. But let's read Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Notice it says many will come, not just one will come. We often think of and talk about the Antichrist. That's the ruler who will emerge in the tribulation period at the end times, who will be a world-dominating ruler. He'll be very persuasive, very powerful, very energetic, very charismatic. And we know that at the end of the age, the Antichrist will be unleashed on the world. But here it says many will come. John, the writer of Revelation, also wrote in his epistle in 1 John 2 verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists will come, by which we know that it is the last hour. There have been many imitators and deceivers. Jesus dealt with it, the early church dealt with it, and we deal with it today. Just in my lifetime, uh, there have been many people like Jim Jones, uh, who deceived many, both politicians and Christians, and in the end, over 10, or sorry, 1,000 people committed mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana. Or men like David Koresh, a self-proclaimed prophet who led the Branch Davidians, and in the end, 76 people were killed in a fiery, burning standoff. Or Marshall Applewhite, the leader of Heaven's Gate in California, he taught 39 followers that when the comet hail Bop came by, that, and that was, it was arriving at that time from, from the outer solar system, that if you take your life, then you would be translated into a spaceship on the other side of the comet, and then that spaceship would take you to heaven. He convinced 39 people to take their own lives through that deception. And recently, uh, this guy in Russia, Sergei Torop, he was a Siberian, who's known to his followers as Vissarion. 
He believes that he is the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and currently has about 10,000 worldwide followers. He's been since imprisoned, but he still has all of these followers. Here's something he said. He said, I am not God, and it's a mistake to see Jesus as God, but I am the living word of God, the Father. Everything that God wants to say, he says through me. That's, that's this guy, Sergei Torop. Listen, there have been many, and there are a lot of deceivers out there. However, just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there will be the ultimate deceiver, the Antichrist. Like You think, well, how will that be? How will this Antichrist rise up? Well, first you have to understand the moral influence of the church is removed in the rapture, which I believe correlates with a second thing found in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 7, the second reason where it tells us that the restraining power of the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth. So the church and the restraining power of the Holy Spirit is taken away. I mean, think about how things are now. Imagine no church and no Holy Spirit influence on the earth. You can quickly realize how things could spiral down very quickly. And at this point, you have many deceivers, and then you will have the ultimate deceiver, the Antichrist. I told you this correlates with Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. Here's that passage. And I looked, and behold, a white horse... He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So here we have this person on a white horse, and some people get confused, and they say, well, that's, that's Jesus, right? He's riding a white horse. Well, in Re- Revelation 19, he is, but this is not Jesus going out conquering and to conquer. That's, that's not what he's doing here. This is not Jesus. This is the Antichrist who goes out to conquer through deception. He will deceive the masses into making a covenant with him, and he will bring in a false peace for three and a half years, and then later show his true colors, demanding worship. So Jesus gives a warning for those living at this time that there will be massive deceptions than the ultimate deception. Well, next we see war in verse, verses 6 and the first part of verse 7. This correlates with the second seal, the red horse, found in Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. Let's read beginning in verse 6 of Matthew 24. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Again, we have always had wars and rumors of war. Since man has been on this earth, we have fought. Our weapons have gotten more advanced as technology has increased. And you could say much of our technology, increase in technology, is man trying to figure out how to be better at war. It has been a proponent of, of, of pushing technology forward. But regardless of the technology, mankind has always been fighting. We've always been fighting. And there's always been wars. It's human nature. In fact, it is, it's been estimated that for every 13 years of war, there's only one year of peace. That's how much war has taken place throughout, throughout history. But toward the end, the wars will escalate, and in the final chapter of world history, the tribulation period, the wars will increase. In the original language, it carries the idea of continuance. There's just continually hearing about war. And you're thinking like, well... 
how much more could we hear about? <laughs> We're hearing about it today. Oh, it's World War III, and, and they're going to invade. I mean, it's all over. Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So peace would be taken away from the earth. And again, that peace is a false peace from the original white horse that came in. Taken away from the, the earth, and war will increase to a fever pitch until a final battle occurs. The mother of all battles, called the Battle of Armageddon, and Revelation says all the kings of the earth and the nations gather together to fight against the Lord in that battle. And it doesn't last very long. I'll just break the, the, the spoiler there. God wins it very easily. But here in Matthew 24, Jesus simply says that prior to his coming, there will be war such as we've never experienced before. But there's more. Now we move on to famine in verse 7. Uh, this correlates with the, the third seal the black horse found in Revelation 6, verses 5 and 6. So verse 7, he says, And there will be famines. Revelation 6, verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Remember, a, a denarius, it, it was a, a day's wage. So for a day's wage, that's what it would cost for just a quart of wheat or three quarts of barley. And listen, we just talked about war. Historically, war and conflict are usually the primary drivers of famine because it leads to forced displacement, it disrupts people's ability to access food or income, and it hinders humanitarian access and pushes economies into a long-term decline. So, and also, you have natural disasters, such as droughts and flooding and cyclones. That can also lead to famine, as they jeopardize agriculture and livestock activities in areas where most of the population lives off the land. Poor nutrition and hunger is responsible for the death of 3.1 million children a year. That's nearly half of all deaths of children under the age of five. And after steadily declining for a decade, world hunger is again on the rise, affecting nearly 10% of the global population. And of course, now we hear about food scarcity and, and things like that today. Well, it will be worse at the end of the age. Number four, disease and death in verse 7. This correlates with the fourth seal, the pale horse, found in Revelation 6, verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, and there will be pestilences. Revelation 6, verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beast of the earth. Now, I know we think of beasts of the earth, we think of all the large animals, but the single most deadliest animal, dangerous animal in the world is a mosquito. 
and how many viruses and, and diseases have come from mosquitoes. The word pestilence means plagues, global plagues, or infectious maladies. And throughout history, the list goes on and on, bubonic plague, malaria, cholera, and uh, measles, all of those things that have led to many, many deaths. And then you think of more modern-day infectious diseases. Uh, SARS was a, was a thing for a while. That ended up being more regional. H1N1, AIDS, the COVID-19 pandemic, which now we're finding out the numbers on that weren't... If you look at what's the most deadly... Uh, Plagues and diseases, it's on the list, but we now know that the numbers were inflated because they counted people who died with COVID, not just people who died of COVID. But then you think about the impact of that, the response of governments of the world, and you consider, well, what if it was like Ebola or something that was just highly infectious and contagious and deadly all at the same time or some worse concoction from a lab somewhere that people cook up? Jesus says, hey, this is all going to get worse. This is going to happen just prior to my return. I know these are not fun to listen to, but we're going to continue on. Earthquakes, number five. This correlates with the sixth seal. So this is where they get just slightly out of order in the way Jesus presents it. But this is the sixth seal found in Revelation 6, verses 12 to 14. But he says at the end of verse 7, and earthquakes in various places. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, reports, in the past 40 to 50 years, we have exceeded the long-term average number of major earthquakes about a dozen times. The year with the largest total was in 2010 with 23 major earthquakes, major being defined as anything greater than or equal to a a magnitude 7.0. This year, 2023 kicked off with a flurry of seismic activity around the U.S. with more than 150 earthquakes in the United States. And then on February 6th of 2023, a 7.8 earthquake struck southern and central Turkey and northern and western Syria. It was followed by a 7.7 level earthquake 50 miles north northwest from the first. The confirmed death toll of both of those combined was over 57,000 people who lost their lives in those earthquakes. I know we typically think of places like California or Japan or the Ring of Fire as being these places where all the earthquakes take place, but the reality is earthquakes happen everywhere, even here in Texas. Yeah, they're smaller here in Texas, but did you know that we've had 2,861 earthquakes in the last year in Texas? Most of them are, are towards West Texas. But Jesus says, just prior to my coming, there's going to be a whole lot more. This, I said, Rev, Revelation 6, verse 12 is a correlation. He, as, uh, John continues, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Again, what Jesus is talking about, John saw. And then he adds, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to the, to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. That is a radical earthquake when the mountains and islands are moving out of place. 
and then this idea that the sky receded up like a scroll and all these cosmic disturbances, it's just incredible to see how all of this takes place. Well, moving on in Matthew 24, we come back to verse 8, and all these are the beginnings are the beginning of sorrows, or as the NIV says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Though none of these events are the specific sign of the end, collectively they are a sign. Just as is true with labor pains, we should expect that these things mentioned, the, the wars, the famines, the pestilence, the earthquakes, they will become more frequent and more intense right before the return of Jesus, without any one of them being the specific sign of the end. It's like when the pain and the contractions become more frequent and more intense. That's the signal. Hey, this is it. It's time to go to the hospital. Uh, You're going to have birth soon. So the birth of the coming kingdom age will be preceded by the pain and the sorrow and the contractions of the birth pains of the great tribulation. Moving on to number six, martyrdom. We see that in verse 9, it correlates with the fifth seal. We'll we'll look at that here in a minute as well. But verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, when he says you, he's not speaking of these disciples, although most of them will be martyred. You refers to the end time believers who will see these events of the tribulation period those believers at the end of the age who will be around to see the events of the Great Tribulation. And you might be thinking now, well, wait a minute. I thought you said there's going to be a rapture of the church coming before this tribulation starts. How do you have believers in the tribulation? Well, here's the answer. More people will get saved after the tribulation begins. That's how. And I'll show you how that works in a moment. So there are going to be people who get saved, and Jesus tells us here, they will deliver you up for tribulation and kill you. So there will be persecution. Again, there has always been persecution from the birth of the church until today. We know that believers in some countries are persecuted and even put to death today. But Jesus says there will be global persecution, and if a person follows me, they will probably die for their faith. Notice he adds, you will be hated by all nations, for my namesake. Everyone will hate you. And it's kind of getting like that for Christians, isn't it? I mean, people in the world, people of the world, who uh, just give themselves over to all of their fleshly desires and pleasures. And because we are, as Christians, well, we're not going with their flow, with the flow of the world. We're trying to follow the Lord and do what God calls us to do, well, somehow we're the ones who are considered intolerant and oppressive. And so they want to do with us the same thing they did to Daniel's friends, throw you into the fire because you won't bow down to their gods. Well, they can't do that yet, though some are trying. There is, a, there is coming a day when there will be all-out persecution fueled by the Antichrist himself. This correlates with Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. So until all of the martyrs came in, they were to wait uh, here in Revelation 6. Back in Matthew 24, verse 10. And then many will be offended. That means put off. They'll be put off. Many will be offended. They will betray one another. So this is happening within the camp. And they will hate one another. So this persecution of believers will happen even amongst family and friends. Mark described the same event in Mark 13, verse 12. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. That happens on a, on a small scale today. I know in, here in the U.S. there are some families where if you give your life to Christ that they will have nothing to do with you. You will be cut off from the family. And we know certainly in some countries this happens where, where it's illegal to follow Jesus. Family members have turned some of their Christian uh, family members over to the authorities. And that happens today. But during the Great Tribulation, it will be fueled by the Antichrist and it will be widespread. Verse 11, Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So as a result of nonstop, unbridled sin, the hearts of people will be so desensitized, they won't care about family associations or, or anyone but themselves. Okay, we get a little breath here, a breath of, of hope. Now we come to some hope. As Jesus is speaking to those living at the time of the Great Tribulation and turn to him, verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now this is a confusing verse for some people. Because you have to answer the question, endures to the end of what? It's not to the end of your life, but the end of the seven-year Great Tribulation. That's what he's been talking about when this gathering happens. It's also important to note that the word saved doesn't always mean salvation or going to heaven the way we think of it. In the New Testament, the word used for saved sometimes refers to something other than going to heaven or eternal life. It speaks of deliverance. You see that in Hebrews 11, verse 7, Philippians 1, verse 19, and here as well. Here it means to be physically protected from the Antichrist who is trying to wipe out Israel and God's people. This is about the Jews, primarily Jewish believers, getting, getting saved, living in the Great Tribulation. It's not about the perseverance of the saints. We can find that in other spots, but that's not what it's referring to here. So we've talked about martyrdom. And finally, number seven, we come to evangelism. Evangelism, here in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus says, the gospel will be preached one last time before I come. Now there are those who say, well, there you have it. Jesus can't come back until we all get out there and proclaim the gospel and we're all preaching the gospel. And there are Christian organizations and especially missionary organizations who use this verse as a challenge to, for believers to get motivated, to get out there and preach the gospel so Jesus can come back as if we can schedule the arrival of Jesus. God's going to come back at his appointed time. 
not because you ushered in his kingdom. Yes, we go out. Yes, we share the gospel with people. But we do it because we love them and we know God loves them and God wants people to be saved. But the timing of it has nothing to do with you. So this verse, in its context, is that despite the deception, the war, the persecution, the, the disease, and all these things that Jesus has been talking about, God will have his witness in the world until the very end. He will have his witness. He's always going to have his witness, and it's even going to be in the very worst time in history. The great tribulation will be the greatest mess the world has ever seen, and in this greatest mess, the greatest message will still be preached. And he's talking about something pretty spectacular that's also found in the book of Revelation, because the question is, well, if the rapture happens, and then there's seven years of tribulation with no believers left, Who's doing the preaching? Well, first, the Bible predicts that there will be witnesses who will come during that time who have miraculous power. Uh, most believe it's the Old Testament prophets, Moses and Elijah, you see in Revelation chapter 12. Those two witnesses are going to have an impact on, Jewish, on the Jewish nation so that 144,000 Jews get saved. They come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. They get saved the same way we do, trusting in Christ as the Messiah. But 144,000 get saved according to Revelation chapter 7, which is the next chapter we've been referring to. They are sealed for God's service in the tribulation period. So two witnesses will prompt 144,000 Jews to be saved during the tribulation period. And then those 144,000 will prompt an innumerable multitude of Gentiles to also be saved. Those are the souls under the altar in Revelation 6, verse 9 that we read. But here's the clincher. And what I believe is the fulfillment of this verse that you just read. In the tribulation period, God is going to send an angel throughout the earth, in the skies, in the heavens, to give one last final call. And every single person on earth will see it and hear it. They'll hear the final everlasting gospel preached through that angel. Uh, listen to what John says. This is in Revelation 14, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the eternal gospel, excuse me, the everlasting gospel, to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So back to our text. Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. There will be a final, dramatic, global evangelization that will take place for every person on earth. No one will have an excuse. Then the end will come. Then Jesus will return. Then all the wars will cease. Uh, th then the saints will return with him, and God will rule over his creation. Wow, what do we do with that? Are you ready for Christ's return? Are you ready? I did a, a funeral yesterday for a family member. Uh, we went up to northwest of Fort Worth where my family uh, has a family cemetery. So we go there and Many of my ancestors are buried there, and you see the, the tombstones and so forth. 
And because it's a family cemetery, I had the opportunity <laughs> if you, to look at it that way, you, where you go ahead and buy your plot for where you're going to be buried. And so I have purchased my plot. My parents have done the same thing. So after the, the funeral, there at the gravesite, um, we knew where the, the plot layout was. So I walked over to where my plot is. I just kind of stood there for a second. Just uh, I know I'm kind of morbid that way, I guess. But <laughs> I was like, wow, this is where my bones are going to be. And I quickly left after that just little brief moment. But it's a reminder that we all die. We all have our days numbered. We don't know how long we have. But we can know that we are right with the Lord because we have trusted him for salvation. So whether our, day, our number is up tomorrow or we get raptured in the church, whenever that might happen, it could be any day, or we live a long, 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 long life, have we trusted in Christ and are we ready for his return?